For me, this last week and weekend have been full. We just moved into our new place, which is very exciting and has also brought stress and anxiety, as well as lots of time desperately searching through the boxes for the one random thing we can't seem to find. And memorial services, like the one we had here yesterday, also bring many big emotions. I did not know Tom Miller, but I can sense the beauty of the life that he lived, as well as the deep pain in remembering his loss. Now today is Sunday and we're remembering the past, reflecting in the moment and looking to the future as we commemorate the life, legacy, and civil rights work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So to bring us together here in this moment, I invite you to join me in a breath prayer. Today I'm drawing heavily on two resources in addition to our Bible stories. And one of them is the book Dear White Peacemakers by Oshita Moore. After every chapter, Moore offers a breath prayer to help us center and ground ourselves and connect with God, a way to recognize that our bodies, emotions, and spirituality are part of all the work that we do. So I'd invite you to join me, find a comfortable way of sitting, close your eyes, take some deep breaths, and we'll use some words as we breathe in and out. So take a deep breath in and breathe out. And on our inhale, we'll say, Jesus. On our exhale, we'll say, be our peace. So breathe in, Jesus. Breathe out, be our peace. Breathe in, Jesus. Breathe out, be our peace. One more time. Breathe in, Jesus. Breathe out, be our peace. Amen. Last week, in what seems strikingly similar to the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack almost two years ago, far-right protesters swarmed the Capitol buildings in Brazil, claiming election fraud against previous President uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro has historically spoken in ways that are outrageously racist against black and indigenous populations in Brazil, while at the same time claiming that racism does not exist. And yet, as we have seen, he has ardent followers. The structures of racism are alive and well all over the world as well as in our own neighborhoods. There is work to do. In the last couple years, the US has had its own reckoning with racism, even in the middle of the pandemic. In 2020, the death of George Floyd, as well as others like Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McLean, and Breonna Taylor, put a national spotlight on racism. Polls estimated that the following protests and demonstrations in the summer of 2020 had greater and more sustained participation than any other protest in US history. And I have heard that Portland 
had nearly continuous protest over racial injustice and police violence for an entire year. Wow, that must have been a historic time to be in Portland. More recently, we've seen partisan lines drawn over these issues played out in odd election competitions like that of Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, both black but offering vastly different perspectives on race. Through all of this, it may seem overwhelming to think about changing the structures that uphold white supremacy, and I would imagine that parts of these experiences in the last several years have felt chaotic and involved losses for us. I wonder what Dr. King would say to us today. Perhaps his words speak just as well today as they did in the past. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied together in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Paying attention to these recent events, we are feeling the impacts and harms of histories, generations of racial injustice. Even closer to home, in the fall of 2021, Portland Mennonite Church did an anti-racism audit. And we learned that we have work to do. So we've tried a number of things, including a recent book study. In discussing the book Dear White Peacemakers by Oshita Moore, we talked about the complexities of dismantling racism. Moore describes herself as an African-American suburbanite Texan who has lived in New Orleans, Los Angeles, and now Minneapolis. She's a pastor and public speaker, calling herself an Anabaptist-y, kingdom-minded woman who can't help but talk about Jesus. Throughout the book, she brings her faith and Bible stories into contact with real-life situations in a very Anabaptist and discipleship-minded way. She articulates stories um, through, she articulates through stories the ways that black and white people experience racism differently and complexly. She speaks of the pain of racial injustice and says that to be black in America is to never be allowed to fully grieve. And at the same time, she names the importance of black joy found in art, culture, church, and music. Moore also describes some of the contradictions white people face in doing anti-racism work. For instance, you need to show up, but stop centering yourself. Yet silence is complicity, but speaking up is exerting your privilege. For our class, Brenda brought a whole sheet full of contradictions that white people face when doing this work. And added on top of this, these struggles hit us in very emotional, embodied ways. I have experienced how conversations about racial justice can easily trigger shame or highly defensive reactions, or we can have quick impulses to correct ourselves or others to find what we think is the right answer. And the heat, the fire of these conversations can sometimes cause people to back away or to avoid certain topics altogether for fear of saying the wrong thing. It can feel like a flood, overwhelming our capacity to process. 
So how do we do this work when it seems like such a complex balancing act, a difficult struggle where we can't find, seem to find the right thing to do? At both the larger systemic level and at the personal internal level, there is work to do. And it is difficult and complex. And there are so many voices telling us to do this or that to the point that apathy or disengagement could feel like the only way to go. Dr. King was no stranger to these challenges. We, we sometimes look back at history and the civil rights movement with rosy glasses, thinking that only of the big dreams that came true. But there was also chaos, and many factions vying for power and control, pointing in many different directions. There is a reason, King said, that the, ar the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This work toward anti-racism is a journey, a long haul march toward just futures. And we are all at different places on the journey. With all these contradictions, the struggle, struggle toward justice can feel, feel almost like a wilderness. And we are struggling to hear the right voice calling our name. In our Bible story today, we have not only one, but two wilderness scenes. So let's dial down into the world of the Gospel of Mark and see what we find. Interestingly, the story from today is actually the, the very beginning of Mark. No birth story here, no Mary, Joseph, shepherds, or anything like that. We just get thrown in with this crazy guy called John the Baptist. The imagery here is full. John has some very weird outdoor gear made of camel hair. At least he has a belt. And he seems to be some kind of forager eating bugs and wild honey. John cries out to us from the wilderness, repent, take account of your wrongdoings. All of these signs shape him up into the mold of a prophet. He may be the new Elijah pointing us towards justice and restoration, yet he points us to his cousin Jesus. John is not the only voice calling for our attention in this world. There are some other very attractive characters in this drama of hope and liberation. The story says that people from the whole Judean region were going to John, but the versions of this story in Matthew and Luke are more, a little more descriptive. There were Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to John, but he was not having it. He called out their hypocrisy, saying that um, their words and actions needed to bear fruit. Being a part of the Abrahamic family was not enough. They needed to act with justice and righteousness. Just being a part of the family, just calling themselves righteousness, righteous was not leading to restoration. John called them to more. In John's day, the Jewish people in Judea were dominated by other kingdoms. After a string of various empires controlled the land of Israel, the Jewish revolutionary group called the Maccabees violently revolted, and they took control of the land, reclaiming the temple. About 60 years before Jesus' birth, Rome took back control and set Israel under the administration of Rome. Within this situation of colonial power and occupation, 
people found several ways to respond to the oppression of empire. There were zealots who continued to plot violent revolt against Rome, a kind of Maccabee wannabe, hoping to again retake their land. Another response was that of the Essenes. These religious communities withdrew from society, trying to stay away from the politics and the pollution of Rome. They lived in separate communal groups, practiced ascetic spirituality, and from them we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Pharisees also tried to establish separation from Rome by creating religious boundaries. In the Gospels, we often see them as uh, legalistic or self-righteous in their moral codes. And the Sadducees were the Jewish upper class, socially and economically. They tended to accommodate and compromise with the occupying powers. In these four groups, or responses to empire, I can see many attractive and easy responses to injustice, things that I see myself and others doing every day. Withdraw or create a strict moral code to follow. Accommodate those in power. Although I have been Mennonite too long to think that violent re re uh, revolt is a good idea. But Jesus and John before him doesn't follow any of these factions that might have seemed very valid. Jesus stays in the dirt of the whole situation, and over and over again he responds with nonviolent and creative ways that disarm others. Even through his own wilderness of temptation, he stands firm in what is right. Jesus says he came to bring good news to the poor, to set prisoners free, and he is consistently finds the lost and the least to work with. He enacts liberation through storytelling, by feeding multitudes, by healing people, and by publicly expressing anger at the systems that take advantage of people. He loved God and he loved people, and this was enough to make those who benefited from oppression deeply disturbed and angry at him. And somehow, he stayed grounded in that love right through all of this. I think we can learn something from this gospel story that will help us in our journey toward justice, that will help us continue on in love as we pursue anti-racism through the long arc of history. In this passage from Mark, John is just the prelude to the spectacular scene of Jesus' baptism. It happens fairly quickly, but with huge signs and miracles. The heavens are torn apart, and the spirit comes down in the form of a dove. This dove could symbolize many things. Perhaps it is like the spirit that hovers over the waters at creation or the dove that symbolizes new creation after the flood. Or some have connected this dove to the Jewish traditions of the feminine divine called Sophia or wisdom. And the voice, the heavenly voice, quotes freely from Psalm, uh, 20, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, which says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is God's chosen, the bringer of justice. So 
Jesus, infused with wisdom from the divine Sophia and a quest for justice, makes his way into the world and soon begins healing people and teaching about the upside-down kingdom of God, the recreation of the world toward wholeness. Jesus both confronts and comforts. And God says, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. God names Jesus beloved. And through all the trials and temptations, Jesus is beloved. Jesus is surrounded and grounded in a love so deep and so wide that nothing can bring him down. A love so big that it is saving us, calling us to liberate ourselves and others. Jesus, who was at the beginning with God in creation, comes to us in human form as one who is beloved. One who experienced all the oppression of empire, the normal tribulation of being human with other humans, and knew all the beauty and terror of being alive on this earth. Jesus is called beloved. And in his baptism, Jesus accepts his name. In this name, Jesus can walk through the waters and not be overwhelmed. With this name, he will not be consumed by the flames. And with this great big love, God longs to bring justice to all those who have been oppressed. Grounded in belovedness, Jesus can show us a new creative way that disrupts everyday oppression. Jesus says, repent and hear the good news. The beloved community is here and it is coming. We can bring it into being. Join me. Another book that I've been reading recently is called Ben in the Struggle, Pursuing an Anti-Racist Spirituality by Regina Shan-Stoltzfus and Tobin Miller-Shearer. Regina Shan-Stoltzfus grew up in the Anabaptist tradition in Cleveland, Ohio. She says, I am a first-generation northerner whose parents were part of the Great Migration, that massive movement of mostly rural black southerners who moved to the north, midwest, and west between 1910 and the 1970s. She's a professor and director of peace justice, and conflict studies program at Goshen College. And I got to know her a little bit in my church in Goshen. Tobin Miller Shearer grew up in various places as the son of a white Mennonite minister. He is now professor and director of African American Studies at the University of Montana. Tobin and his spouse Cheryl co-founded the organization Wider Stand Consulting, the same organization that did our anti-racism audit. In the book, Tobin and Regina also talk about their own journeys toward belovedness as an important part of their anti-racism work. In fact, all of these writers start from the point of belovedness and then go on to tell us about the work that they have done and the experiences that they have had in dismantling racism. They are vulnerable in describing their failures because in this work, we will all make mistakes. And they lean on their faith 
spirituality and discipleship as important areas of strength, but also places for transformation. They offer many strategies and ideas for engaging the work. In particular, Tobin and Regina uh, describe three first steps that predominantly white organizations can take to work at anti-racism. One is to make public their commitment to anti-racism through their mission, statement, signage, and online presence. A second is to develop a common language and framework for talking about and working to dismantle racism. A third step is to do an anti-racism audit that involves patrons, professionals, and people of color. And another strategy they describe is white caucusing, which involves gatherings that allow for white people to explore questions and work through issues without requiring that people of color sit through their struggles. You'll notice that we at PMC are in process on many of these important steps. But digging into these and other kinds of anti-racism work across the whole of the church requires a kind of stamina and persistence to keep going as we encounter difficult things. Regina and Tobin note that in their vast experiences, conversations around race can be full of tension and conflict. People have great fears of making mistakes and come from very different places on the journey to anti-racism. Tobin describes how threatened he felt the first time he was challenged to think about his connection to anti-racism. Like our Isaiah passage, we may feel overwhelmed by the waters of how big racial injustice is. We may feel the shame of our involvement with white supremacy like a burning flame. We may feel that we are in a wilderness of contradictions, just trying to find the right voice to follow and navigate the complicated and nuanced lines of what to do. So a key for us here and now is this belovedness. And I'm drawing on this especially from Oshida Moore because it is a core element that she builds her book on. To feel ourselves beloved is the starting and grounding point of the complex and long-term work of dismantling racism. And the goal is the beloved community, God's beautiful kingdom. She writes, Jesus says that in this world we will have trouble, but to take heart, for he has overcome the world. He did this first by owning his belovedness, and then by proclaiming it to every single person he met. His belovedness empowered him to challenge social hierarchies based on fear of the other, to offer relief to those who have been oppressed and eventually sacrificially love on the cross. When you are grounded in something other than your works or results, when you are grounded in a truer, deeper, soul-healing confidence, you can continue to press on even if it means death to your comforts and control. This is your calling when trouble comes to you as you practice anti-racism. Own your belovedness so that you can pro proclaim mine. 
Belovedness is like a flowing river of renewal and justice. It allows us to challenge systems and have difficult conversations. It moves us from individualism into community. With this starting point, we can find creative, prophetic, and healing ways to work toward racial justice. So here's what I have for you today. We can do a hard thing, and we can do it together. By starting from the point of our own belovedness to God and being grounded in God's love, we can continue to pursue anti-racism for the long arc. This work and these conversations can also be very rich experiences, create room for the joy of being together, and build stronger and deeper community. Not only that, but this work of dismantling racism is an integral part of, the, of building God's kingdom of shalom here and now, of joining the work that God is already doing in our world of creating the beloved community. As it is written in Isaiah, God has created and named us. We are beloved, and God says, do not fear, I will be with you. We can pass through the waters, and they will not overwhelm us. We will walk through the fire, and the flames will not consume us. 